church. I didn't say good morning yet. Good morning. Happy Valentine's Day. Oh, my goodness. Hey. <laughs> I'm glad you guys are here today. We are in a series on community. This is part two of that series, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited to get to this message today. Uh, God changed a lot of my thinking this week in preparation and just even new revelations, so I'm excited to share it with you. But before we do that, I want to talk to you guys about my wedding day. So on our wedding day, me and Amy participated in this ancient tradition that dates all the way back to ancient Rome and Greece, and if you're in the room and you're married, you probably did this too. It's the ring exchange, right? You take a ring and you give it to each other and you exchange this. Now, the ring has no legal ramifications on you, right? Because you put on a ring, you're not simply married to somebody. But it shows to everybody, we know culturally, that it means that you are off the market, right? Right. Right? Right. Okay, we're responsive today. We're awake. We're talking. We're excited to be here. Right. And so I want you to imagine this, though. Imagine that you were there with me on our wedding day. And imagine that you're in the pews, and the light is streaming through the window, and the photography is just perfect. Everybody's just looking their best. I mean, the pastor is just bringing this awesome message that's just making you cry, but also making you laugh, and it's just this beautiful thing. And we finally get to the end where he says, kiss the bride, and we kiss, and everybody cheers, and then we stand up, he says, for the first time, we present to you Mr. and Mrs. Wen, and we walk out, and you're throwing rice at us, or whatever you do, right? And we open the doors, and everybody's hugging us, and we walk into two separate cars, and we drive to two separate homes. Doesn't that feel a little odd? And I imagine that we are legally married, but we live these separate lives. Imagine that we kind of see each other on the holidays, or maybe when we're having a rough day, but mostly we just go about our lives married, but separated. It just doesn't fit right with us, right? That's just not our idea of marriage, because the wedding ceremony was never the pinnacle of the relationship. It was never the height. It's just the place where you start the relationship, the place where you start saying, I'm going to choose to commit to do life together. Right? Oh, we're good. Your salvation is exactly the same. It's very easy to, not idolize, but think that the height of your relationship is the moment that we get saved. Yeah, that's not the moment. That's just the part where you jumped on board and said, I want to start doing life together with Christ. Because there's always more. Christ is always calling us more to more depth, more intimacy, more growth, more more time together. And that more, how God made it, happens and expresses itself through community, biblical community. Last week, we used this quote, but it's so good, I really want to use it again, okay? This is from uh, Catholic priest John Michael Talbot, and he says, When we hear the call to follow Jesus as his disciples, we do so as a personal response to Christ. But as soon as we follow him, we discover that a bunch of other people have showed up. The initial response to the call of Christ is most personal and intimate, 
But the call to keep on going is unquestionably communal. It involves a community of disciples called the church or the gathering. There's this Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you're unfamiliar with him, he was a Lutheran pastor. He was a theologian, anti-Nazi dissident. He was a key member of the founding church of the Confessing Church during the early to mid-1900s, okay? And during World War II, he had a seminary, which he called the Underground Seminary. And he was gathering these pastors and teaching them how to push back against Nazism, how to pastor, how to lead a community, how to be a Jesus Christ, the follower, and during war, during Nazi oppression. When that got shut down, he lovingly called it and turned it the seminary on the run because they all dispersed and went to their churches and he would go around and visit those different churches. And he puts all of everything I just said and all of last week very bluntly and very simply. I'm going to read to you what he says. He says this, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ, period. If you don't get anything else, we could probably just stop the message right here Just take that term with you. Christianity means community in Jesus Christ. Oh, sorry. Through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. Last week, we did a pretty deep dive in hyper-individualism in our culture. And we talked about strong group culture, and we talked about the, the collective group culture a little bit. But this week, we need a little bit better background and understanding of what the strong group culture, the culture that Jesus was speaking into, the culture that he was teaching into, to kind of understand a little bit better his, this idea of community, this idea of uh, discipleship together that he was kind of teaching. And so I want to go back and give you a, a little bit more context into what a strong group is. So if I was to have a conversation and sit down with you for the first time and we're drinking coffee, black coffee, obviously, because that is the only and best way to enjoy coffee, right? (laughs) Divided church. Okay, so if we were to sit down and I would say, who are you? You would probably define yourself by what you do. I'm a teacher, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I, uh, in, in marketing, or maybe you would define yourself by things that you enjoy doing. Like, I'm, I'm kind of an artsy person that likes nature and granola and CrossFit. That's my impression of Brayden, by the way. Okay? <laughs> but if I was to ask the same question in the Jewish culture, the context of the time when Jesus was teaching, the answer would be radically different. You would define yourself by your group, And conversely, you would also define others by their group. So if I was to say, who are you? You might get something like this. I'm Bob, son of Bobbo, son of Bobby, son of Robert. Oh, Robert's kid. Yeah, okay, yeah, you're part of that town and that tribe, right? You define yourself by the group context. Okay, I think we have this definition for you of a strong group. It's a little bit lengthy, but it, it, it does such a good job of giving you a good idea, a baseline of to work off of. So I'm going to read this to you guys and just uh, stay with me on this. It says this, In a strong group society, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of the group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, life in general. Correspondingly, he or she perceives other people primarily in the terms of the group to which they belong. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with the group norm and only if the action is in the group's best interest. 
The group has priority over the individual member, and it may use objects in the environment, other groups of people in the society, and members of the group itself to facilitate group-oriented goals and objectives. I was a little bit, I was a lot, but let it sink in for a second. If you read it too quickly, it'll pass by you, and you, it won't affect you. But if you think about this for a second, this is so counterintuitive to how we live our lives. We have no group affiliation. It's very easy to quit things. I know right exactly where the unfollow button is. I'll unfollow you just because I like how it feels. But yet, in Jesus' culture and context, everything you did ran through the filter of, is this in the benefit? Does it build up the group, not myself? That's very, very from how do we live right now in today's world. Pastor Joseph Hellerman, I'm going to reference him a lot throughout this message. He wrote a book. He's a pastor, I think, out in California. And he writes a book called When the Church Was a Family. And he basically does a very deep dive on this subject of uh, the church's family and strong group culture. And he, he kind of comes up with these couple of different principles that are kind of guiding principles that are going to help us in today's message. So he says this. He says, In the world in which Jesus and his followers lived, it was a distinctly strong group culture in which the health of the group, not the need of the individual, received first priority. And here are some of the principles. Number one, in the New Testament world, the group took priority over the individual. Number two, in the New Testament world, a person's most important group was his family. And number three, in the New Testament world... The closest family bond was the bond between siblings. That is very odd to us. Because in our current culture, the highest bond, the most relational bond that we have, was probably what most of us would say is marriage. So it's very timely that we're talking about this on Valentine's Day. I'm talking about the sibling relationship is stronger than the marriage relationship in Jesus' context. But the reason for this, though, is because it was a strong group culture. In ancient Jewish Mediterranean society, marriage was conducted not for the uh, for, was conducted for the good of the group. Romance and love had nothing to do with it. The two to be married submitted their decision of marriage to their parents or to the people of their strong group, choosing to trust them that they would do what was good for them and ultimately good for the group. This doesn't mean that romance and love wasn't there. It just was not a deciding factor. In fact, even right now, something like 40 to 50% of marriages in the U.S. usually end in divorce. Now compare that to the rest of the world where much of the rest of the world still operates in arranged marriages to a 4% divorce rate. Something north of 4 south of 4%. And so... That's not a complete exact comparison. There's some differences there, and that's not exactly the same. But it is showing that getting married was not just a jail sentence, but the main benefit was to the group. And so why is it that the sibling bond was most important? So the, mar- the sibling bond, though, was because that in Jesus' time, it was a patrilineal family heritage, meaning that the males in the family inherited the family's name, inherited the family's wealth. And so only through a male could the line continue to go on and go on. And so when a woman married in, she could inherit the family name, but not the family blood. And so this created an environment in the women's world where it was the primary mission of a woman in Jesus' culture was to have a son. 
You see this all throughout the Old Testament because in order, if you have a son, you continue the honor, you continue the name, you continue the group. It's for the best benefit of the group. And so in this, is a, a weird thing that just does not compute for us today is that blood was deeper than romance. And so a woman would feel closer or more loyal to her siblings who shared similar blood than she would to her spouse and uh, family that she married into. So if you're familiar with the story of Mark Antony and Octavia, it's kind of an older historic story. Octavia is married between these two um, warring factions of Rome. And she marries to broker an allegiance or alliance to keep the war at bay, to keep at peace. And she says this, and this is a quote, she says, I am the happiest of women in a letter she writes. And she's, she says that she's happy in her marriage to Antonio. Antonio. But yet when war inevitably breaks out, she is expected and she chooses to keep loyalty with her brother over her marriage. So all of this, again, is just setting up the context into which Jesus is speaking. Again, in the New Testament world, the group took priority over the individual. A, world's, uh, a person's most important group was his family. And in the New Testament world, the closest family bond was the bond between siblings. Now, earlier I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer as a dissonant. A dissonant is somebody that pushes back or um, is a person who opposes official policy. And we may never not really think of Jesus in this way, but he was one of the most dissonant teachers that spread some of the most subversive teachings of all time. His teachings were radical. And one of the most radical, offensive teachings that goes right above our heads is his teaching on family. Specifically, his anti-family passages. And so we're going to get into some of those passages today. And so when I say anti-family passages, if you turn to Mark chapter 3, verse 31, we're going to start there. Mark chapter 3, verse 31. It says this. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside, sent word for him to come out and talk to them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Verse 33, Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked around at those, with, uh, then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This does not slap like it does back then in Jesus' time right now. As Jesus said this, Jesus is the oldest member of their family. He's the oldest sibling. We can kind of assume that Joseph, his biological or earthly, not biological, but earthly father has passed away because of his lack of mention in scripture, how Jesus at the crucifixion commands uh, one of his disciples to take care of his biological mother. So we kind of assume that Joseph is a valid picture at this point. And so Jesus would have been the one responsible for his family. He was responsible for providing, for the honor, for increasing the wealth, for provision, for, for protection. Yet here in a public setting, Jesus denounces his family and brings this honor not only to himself, but his family. This was radical, subversive teaching. This was, this was something like... <gasps> Did you hear what he just said? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Did you hear what Jesus said? Like, it was like, what in the world? 
is he doing? Did he just say that, did he just break ties with his family? Did he just break loyalty with his family? And instead he replaces loyalty to his family to those who are doing the kingdom of God. We read this in scripture and it just doesn't quite feel the same because this is just part of our vernacular. Chad, brother from another mother, right? Sydney, sister from another mister. Like we just say this stuff all the time. Yet in this time, remember, keep those key points in your mind, is that the strongest family bond was the sibling bond. Notice the language that he calls them around him. Mother, brother, and sister, those who do the will of God. And so Jesus uses the strongest relationship at the time to show that those in the kingdom of God are now supposed to be the strongest family bond that you would have. Those who do the will of God, those who come into God's kingdom are now your brother, now your mother, now your sister. And your mind might be racing a little bit to the back. Does that mean I'm like, supposed to neglect my family? No. Do not neglect your family, okay? We're going to get to that a little bit later. But Jesus is using this terminology for, the, the, for what they would understand as the most important function of family and swapping it for a different group. This was radical teaching. Jesus calls for a shift in loyalty, a shift in allegiance. And we get this picture. There's lots of communities. It's kind of, um, I, I don't know if I did a good job last week expressing this. When I'm talking about community, I am talking about your biblical community and discipleship to Jesus. Because all of us have different levels of community. Your coffee shop club is community. The people that you see when you drop your kids off are community. The people that you do karate with, Brayden, wherever you are, are community. Brayden's kid, not Brayden, just to be clear. right? Those are all types of community. But today what we're talking about is Jesus' call to biblical discipleship community. Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. You are not made to become like Jesus by yourself. You are not made to live the Christian life isolated and alone. Jesus is calling us, you and I, not to a moment, but a movement. This goes all the way back to the wedding ring and marriage. You weren't called just to a specific moment of deliverance. You're not called to a specific moment of salvation. Yes, that's part of it, but that is just the beginning. That is the point where you jump on board with the movement that Jesus is creating. The thing that he's spreading. You were not called just to a movement, but to a movement. And all of us are invited to the party. You see, the thing is that God originally chose a people through Abraham. And then later, Abraham became Israel. And that's where we got all the stories of the New Testament and Old Testament from. is basically the tra- traverses of uh, the stories of Israelites interacting with God and his people. And God tells them, you'll be my people, and through you, you will go and bless all the nations. But Israel did not do a very good job of this. Instead of going out and bringing and inviting in, they privatized God. They created barriers that separated people from God, and even stereotypes that separated the low class from the high class from entering in communion with God. But Jesus came and rectified the situation. 
Jesus came and blasted all those walls down. Look at this. This is Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11. Starting verse 11, he says, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens. I've been called a lot of things. Not been called that yet. That's a rough one. By the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies, not their hearts. What that is referring to there is, again, tribe. There's a very unique custom medical procedure that separated them from everybody else. They took a lot of pride in doing that. Verse 12, in those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. You did not know the covenant promises God had made for them. You lived in this world without God, without hope. But now you have been united with Christ. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Skip to verse 19. So now you are no longer Gentiles, or you, now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. God, Jesus is teaching, this radical teaching is that you are supposed to give up loyalty to your natural ties and replace them for God's and Jesus' surrogate family, the faith community of God. This would have affected everything. This would have been a complete change in mindset and lifestyle. Jesus had these, uh, Jesus' obstacles, Jesus' audience's obstacles would have been that they had to navigate and separate loyalty. Pastor Joseph Hellman, he says, family loyalty was an exclusive commitment. The decision to join God's family invariably meant that compromising to some degree the ties of loyalty that connected Jesus' followers to their natural families. When the, nat- when the church first started, there was much great persecution. And so leaving your family of origin literally meant that they would, they, would have a, they would be like a funeral process and that you were being cut off. You were kicked out of the temple, excluded from the Jewish synagogue, which is the place, the epicenter of life for these communities. You were kicked out of the family. And so it was a very real separation of family, biological family, to follow the family of God. They weren't called to just to a moment that would pass by. They were called to a movement which was following Jesus, becoming a disciple like Jesus, and creating a church in his image. That is not really an obstacle nowadays. Nowadays, though, our greatest loyalty is not to the group or even to family, but our greatest loyalty is an individualism culture that's driven us to ourselves, not to others. And this has even bled into our faith and how we interpret our faith, how we view our discipleship as an individual event instead of a community-creating event. I got saved with Jesus, and now I participate in church because of how it affects me, what it can do for me. We consume church like clothes in our closet. As soon as it no longer fits our preferences or cultural relevance, and again, this is Joseph Hellerman, he says, we are deluded in thinking that another church down the road will somehow better meet our needs. Where Jesus' teachings were a radical shift of loyalty, Jesus is teaching us to radically shift our priorities and our lifestyle, to radically shift our commitments. This over time, this message of the church has become isolated to just me and Jesus. And we get this term, personal savior. 
which is not really found here in the Bible. We get this term of Jesus is my personal Savior, my, my personal buddy, my personal companion, the guy that I pull out to get me out of a time of hardship. But yet again, God did not call you to a single moment. He called you to a movement of people following him together. The call of Jesus, John, Peter, come, follow me, was never individual. It was in the context of a group of people following him. Look at Acts chapter 2. This is, if you're thinking about communion, you're familiar with the Bible, you're probably like, when's he going to get to Acts chapter 2? Because that's where we get all of our ideas and thoughts. It's like the the holy grail of teaching for community. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, verse 42 says, those who believed with Peter, those who believed what Peter had said were baptized and added to church that day, about 3,000 in all. All the believers were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Salvation meant commitment to fellowship. Salvation, upon entering relationship with Jesus, meant a new family origin, meant a new fam- a surrogate family of Christ and entering into it. Now, though, if we treat church or faith community as an individual event, if the message doesn't fit us well or is uncomfortable, if the music doesn't hit like it used to, if the people aren't up to our standards, it's so easy to simply cross that community out and go and check the next one out on the list. That's what individualism has done to us in how we approach faith. And I want to be really, really clear here. When I'm talking about church, I'm not trying to recruit you guys to go and be a door greeter or a cafe worker, which that would be great. And if you want to do that, see me after church. But that's not what we're trying to do right now. When I'm talking about church, I'm talking about the group of people, the faith community, the people that you're surrounding yourself with as you're trying to grow in your walk with Jesus. I'm not trying to talk about enhancing the building. I'm talking about you becoming a disciple in the community of believers. And that, how it happens is you normally find people who love Jesus in the church. It's just kind of the natural place where you find them. Joseph Hellerman says, Preoccupation with individual spirituality remains an incomplete and inadequate picture of the Christian life. God's group only comes in the picture as some sort of utilitarian aid to an individual growth in the Christian faith. We have this mindset that says our faith is personal, increases in it while we are alone. But Jesus is calling us to a new mindset, a new shifting of priorities, a shifting of ideas. Jesus' radical teaching is a radical call to reprioritize our lives. Jesus calls us to join his family. The family group of God replaces our individualized focused lives. We have a graph up here at some point that's going to come up. And this is kind of how I've been trained, and maybe if you've been in the church for a while, you've had... This is our, our faith is kind of brought up to believe is that this is our order of priorities. Do we have that, guys? Yeah. Okay, great. And so if you, like me, maybe you've grown up in the church for a while, and this is kind of like it's either been taught or assumed or kind of been passed down is that this is how you're supposed to 
prioritize and order your lives. Your relationship with God first. Then your family. Then your church family. And then others. Yet when I read these turns from Jesus, and I read, read this verse, and here's another one. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 28. It says, A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison hate, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. If you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But do not begin until you count the cost. My father and mother-in-law are here today. It's a great day to visit as I preach about hating your father and your mother and your brothers and your sisters. This is yet another one of Jesus' anti-family passages where he talks about in comparison to your loyalty for God and God's family, your love for these other things should be below that. This is very, very difficult teaching for us to get our heads around because this idea is that not that my relationship with God's first or my family comes second, is that God's family is actually elevated first. This is what his call was to the cultural context of his time is that your first priority is to the family of God, the community of disciples that you're following me with. That is your first. You cannot have, you cannot have a divided mind. Your first call is to your new brothers and sisters, the ones who are doing the will of God. So does that mean, me and Brady were talking about this in the office, he said, well, what if I, what if I have a call from God to go, to go be a missionary on some place? Do I just leave my family and just let them figure it out? Hey guys, sorry, dad's gone because I'm feeling called by God to go increase the family of God. No, do not neglect your family, okay? For every anti-family teaching we have from Jesus, we have two or three or four passages where Jesus talks about how to equip and love and treat each other in the family of God. But I think if we have graph number two up here, guys, we can pull that up. For me and my understanding of trying to figure this out, I think it looks something more like this. Instead of trying to balance relationships and school and family and my relationship with God and job and work and neighbors and life and trying to figure out how to throw all these things in the air in God's family, I think it's more of receiving and putting it in the context of a strong group. Putting it in the context of all of these things inside of the family of God. And it calls for a commit. One, it calls for a commitment. And two, it calls for reprioritization. Reprioritizing your priorities. Because you can't have it all. You can't juggle all the things that we normally try to juggle and keep them all afloat. I was, I was actually originally going to come up here, and I, I, can, I used to be able to kind of juggle just a little bit, like very little. Take whatever you're thinking and lower those expectations exponentially, okay? Like I could kind of keep three of the balls in the air. But then I realized I'm holding a mic, so we're not going to do that. So just imagine with me, though, that I had a bunch of balls up here, and I was throwing them up in the air trying to juggle them. And then somebody comes up here and tries to throw, here's work. Here's an extra school activity. Here's that extra job you need to do to pick up that shift, to put on that porch rendition. Here's the thing. And I'm just throwing in, they all fall. But in reality, it looks a little bit more like if I had a basket and I put all the balls inside the basket and saying, instead of trying to keep all this stuff afloat, I'm going to put them inside the context of God's family. 
How can I fit these things to match where this group of people is going instead of trying to match those people to my lifestyle? Instead of trying to match church and trying to, trying to match this, this worship style or this passage or whatever, how do I match this into my life? How do I reprioritize? How do I align with where my faith community is going? This is the difficult part for us. We had that term a little bit ago. John Mark Comer is a pastor out of Bridgetown Church out of Portland, and he, he, in his series on community, he did this exercise, and I think it's so good. He took the strong group definition, and he took out strong group, and he replaced the word with church. And so I want to read this definition to you now, replacing the word group with church, and just pay attention to what it does inside of you. And if church is a... Um, trigger word for you, replace it with community group or people that you're following Jesus with. In the church, we perceive ourselves to be the member of the church, responsible to the church for our actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. That, I need to read that again. In the church, we perceive ourselves to be a member of the church, responsible to the church for our actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. We are free to do what we feel right and necessary only if in accord with the church norms and only if the actions are in the church's best interest. The church has priority over the individual and it may use objects in the environment, other groups and the people and society and members of the church itself to facilitate group-oriented goals and objectives. How does that make you feel? Because that pushes back on me and makes me feel very uncomfortable. That is difficult. To come in and to surrender to a group of people, to, to take down my walls, to let you in, to know how I'm actually doing with my life, to, to let you pass the, the, the exterior that I put up in my day-to-day, that we all put up in our day-to-day to let you see how I run my family, to let you see, to let you have input into my life, into the way I spend my money, my time, my energy. That is so difficult. That is so radical. That's so different than how we live our lives. Instead, we normally, instead approach this as that church is my personal thing. And we're going to approach it as a, what can you do for me? How will you grow my discipleship? What program or event do you have for me that I can enroll into? What class is there? But yet, transformation, though, happens in the context of community. Becoming like Jesus happens in the context of being around like-minded followers, submitting to the group, allowing the group to have input into your life, allowing the group to speak to you. But what it takes not only is making, swapping priorities, making room for this in your life, it takes a commitment. Me and Amy were talking about this last night. We have a young adults group that meets at our house and ages range from 18 to 30 plus. Okay, so it's about a decade there of age range. Actually, more if you count our kids. But we were talking about this is that we started this almost a year ago. We had met at Culver's two times in February, and then uh, COVID hit, a shutdown came on, and we, went to, we had to move to a Zoom group. And we pursued on, and so it's been almost a year now. And we were talking about how we got a couple texts after group this last week, and uh, we responding to them and praying with some of the individuals that had reached out to us about some stuff going on in their life, direction and asking for help. And we were talking about how 
That took a year to foster. It was a year in the making. I have been involved in small group, community group situations since I have been 18 years old. And from my personal experience, it takes time, dedication, and commitment to get to a level where you actually open up enough for somebody to know you. I'm seven and a half-ish years married now to Amy, and it still blows my mind how much I don't know about her and how much she doesn't know about me. Yes, we know how we like our coffee, and yes, we know how, whose side of the bed is on and how to fold the shirts and blah, 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 those kinds of things, right? But there are still times I'm like, what in the world, this is actually more of Amy talking to me, what in the world would possess you to do that? What makes you think that balancing a baby on your one hand and just walking around like a shit, what makes you think that's a good idea? I don't know, I thought it was cool. I've only dropped them once. Okay. Is over time, over time together, over commitment to each other, intimacy happens. Jesus' discipleship, or Jesus' ministry is three years long. And over that course of time, you see Jesus' followers come from outside bystanders to actively participating, to joining the movement and pushing it forward. If we treat our church, if we treat community groups with an individualism, a materialism, a consumeristic mindset, as soon as the first person, as soon as the honeymoon's over, and that person, when you're sitting down to eat, always bumps elbows with you, and they're getting in your space, or they always smell a little bad because they just came out from working out, I'm done, tapping out, new small group. If we lack a decision to make a commitment, you will not get to the place of intimacy where you can get to know each other and where you can be known. If you do not persevere through conflict and bring it to resolution, the first time you're offended, you will walk away and you will unwittingly take those relational problems to your next group. They don't resolve themselves by themselves. It may require you tearing down walls. I have nothing against men's group and women's group and youth group and young adult group and kids group and kids church and this church and senior ministry. I have nothing against that. But what it does happen is that we are too busy or use that as an excuse. I'm too busy in my normal life to commit to a group. Because Saturday morning, that's the time I have with my family. And so if I go there, I sacrifice my time with my family so I can't go to men's group. Or I can't go to women's group. Or uh, Wednesday night, our kids are committed to you fill in the blank. And they can't come to youth group because we're committed. And that means that they won't be able to do this and da 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 so it might require you tearing down boundaries. I have preached 20, 30 sermons to youth group with a baby on my hip right here. I have preached more times in kids' church where, hey, stop it, back there. Yeah, nor you sit down. Yeah, don't jump. Yeah, okay, where were we at? Yeah, purity, okay. Right, I have preached more time. My kids have been to more youth group functions 
in their four years of life than I've been in my first 20 years of life. Because it required me taking down some of the barriers, reshaping my idea of what group might look like. Because my current group is a little bit crazy. My current group means that sometimes my kids, you might be sharing your life story and sobbing on my dining room table, but my kid's yelling because he doesn't want to eat broccoli. Sorry, it's family. I don't segregate you to the living room because you're too old or too young. And so reshaping your group might look a little different than what you thought it might look. And we're going to get into this next week about how God's ideal, or God's, God's reality versus our ideal. But God has placed you in a place to connect with the people around you. It might just mean reshaping your idea of that. It might mean taking your priorities away and swapping in God's instead. Where's your band? You can start coming up. I started thinking about, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this book called um, Out of His Time Doing the Underground Seminary and the Seminary on the Run. He came two books. And the one that probably most of us have heard of is The Cost of Discipleship. Thick book, kind of the go-to, one of the class, literary classics in Christianity and faith. But one, a smaller one that came out, which is just, it was like 100 pages or something like that, is Life Together. And all of these things came out of his experience and understanding of doing life together. If I'm really honest with you, I can't remember where I was going with that thought. (laughs) But I have my next quote ready for you. Oh, I remember now. We're back into it. The cost of discipleship. So it got me thinking about what is the cost if we take ourselves out of community. There's a cost. When you commit to something, you're you're choosing to say yes to this and no to that. What's the cost? And so, Joseph, Pastor Joseph Hellman says, to leave God's family is to leave the very arena in which God manifests his life-giving power and hope to human beings in the world in which we live. To leave, God's, to leave God's family is to leave the very arena in which God manifests his life-giving powers and hope. Theologian Dallas Willard says it this way in his book, The Spirit Disciplines. He says, non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding goodness, governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs the abundance, that abundance of life that Jesus said he came to bring. John 10.10 says, I have come so that they may have life and have it abundantly. The cost of abundant life, fulfilling life, life where you grow and receive and give God's love, you choose to separate yourself from a faith community you choose to walk away from those things and you swap in all the things that our world or we convince ourselves we should be living for in the context of family God's family is where you receive God's love And I would say that probably for most of us, when we are touched by God's love is when our life starts to change. But it takes 
reprioritizing and commitment to God's family and putting everything else in accord to lifting that group up first. Let me pray for you. We're going to end with a little bit of worship. Father, and all across this room, we can close the lighting and with people, whoever you are, would you just stand up? Lord, I just really don't know where this word lands today with people, God. God, I know that for me personally in my office this week, God, I had to grapple with this because this was such a dramatic change in how I tend to think. Lord, but I know I want to be like you. I know I desperately want the abundant life you've promised, Father. God, I know that I'm convinced that community is the place to experience it, Father. God, I pray right now, God, that you would give us a heart for community. Lord, I pray right now, Father, that you would give us a passion to pursue it. Lord, I pray the things that come in the way and the obstacles that the enemy is going to throw at us and say, we don't have time for this, or we don't have space for this, or we've been too hurt to be involved in this, God. I pray that those, that voice would be silenced in the name of Jesus. God, I pray that when we get in fights, Father, when we get offended, Father, that your spirit of peace and resolution would come and start to invade that place, Lord. I pray against the, the, I pray against the disruptor, God, the one that come, wants to come and disrupt unity, the one that wants to come and to stir up a battle, stir up a fight, stir up a grudge, Father. I just pray that you would just quiet his voice. Holy Spirit, just come right now, Father. Lord, I love you and praise you in Jesus' name.